Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to have uh, us all be here together. Uh, I, I just want to start off by uh, communicating that um, if you're hearing my voice today, whether you're here in person, whether you're watching online, or whether you are listening to our podcast later, um, I hope that if nothing else throughout the next however much time we have together, um, that you know how deeply loved you are by God, um, that your value is found in him. And wherever you are in that journey, maybe you're following him wholeheartedly, maybe you're unsure, maybe you're um, feeling pretty disconnected and disinterested. Wherever you are, we honor you that you're a part of our service today, and we hope and we pray that God speaks to you, uh, to each of us, uh, in just a meaningful way. Um, with that said, we are uh, in week two of a series that we're calling The Five Thresholds. If you are with us last week, um, I should say, if you weren't with us last week, I would encourage you uh, to go on to our website, pomerado.com slash messages, um, because last week, and you, and you could watch our message there, last week was, um, it set the tone and it kind of gave an overview of where we're going over the next several weeks together. So if you're here and you weren't here last week, that's okay. It's not like you're going to miss out and, and feel completely lost, um, but I do know that last week's kind of helps build uh, the stage, or set the stage, excuse me, um, for this series. Now, to give a brief idea of what this series is about, it was based off of a book, we have a picture up here, uh, called I Once Was Lost by Don Everts and Doug Shop. They are people who interviewed thousands of people who were very disinterested in Jesus, uh, and they became fully devoted followers of Christ. And how did that journey take place? A lot of their interviewees were college students because this book uh, is printed by InterVarsity Press and they gave us permission to, to use some of their graphics and they've been really great to work with. Um, but we give credit to where credit is due, that a lot of our content throughout this series uh, will be connected to this book. And so if this is a topic you are interested in, I would encourage you to purchase this book, uh, read through it, um, take notes, um, and I think it'd be really impactful. And if it's a topic you're not interested in, just don't tell me so I don't feel bad. Um, just kidding. So with that said, uh, we are going to start today looking at threshold one. The first threshold that these interviewees shared needed to take place in order for them to get to a point where they're completely disinterested in God. To following him is threshold one as we move from trust, or excuse me, from distrust to trust. What does that mean? It means that how do we walk alongside people? In order for someone to, at some point, trust Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives, at some point, they need to be able to trust a Christian. They need to trust someone who follows Christ. Because we live, as many of you know, we live in an era, um, a, a, a culture, a time in our world where distrust is at a maximum. It's at a peak. Um, and specifically distrust when it comes to Christians. Let me, let me unpack this for a second because um, in 2011, I went to Zimbabwe as part of a missions team um, at my previous church. And um, I had the opportunity, we, we, our church had paid for a well to be brought to the Mondoro village um, uh, in the area of Rua in Zimbabwe. And when we were there, we had the honor, as you could see from that photo, we had the honor of being able to like dedicate this well to this village. Um, and there were uh, representatives, there were a, a village chief there, um, other lo uh, local leaders were there. And I had the honor because I was a pastor to be a part of this ceremony. Uh, the gentleman in the green uh, is a friend of mine, John, he was the leader, I was the co-leader of the trip. But 
um, when they found out I was a pastor, they, they wanted me to be a part of it. And it was a very interesting experience when I was there because I shared with the team and, and shared with a few people when I came back how when I went to Zimbabwe and when they found out that I was a pastor, there was, there was automatically um, uh, a degree of respect or a degree of, of you know, not, not, not like deference, nothing like crazy, but just like, oh, like there's a respect for the office of a pastor, for the role of a pastor. And I was a youth pastor at the time, and I remember feeling when I was there that there was a lot of just, oh, like you can, you can trust a pastor. There's, there's respect there. And then I remember feeling when I came back home that the dynamic is, with Zimbabwe, it's, oh, you're a pastor, we show respect. In the States, it can feel like, oh, you're a youth pastor, when are you going to get a real job? And of course, those of us who know youth ministry know there is, there is nothing further from the truth. Like a youth pastor, children's I mean, these are vital, vital roles. But the degree of respect towards a pastoral role in our culture, in our day and age, in our country, and in, in, in general, is much more diminished than it once had been. And so Christians used to be able to say, oh, you're a Christian. And even if they, people didn't agree theologically or with the faith, they might be, be able to say, yeah, but I know that Christians will, will, will be good people because they will follow, um, you know, they'll follow uh, the Bible and, and they'll do good things. And yet there's a degree to which that has been lost. To give an example, you know, where we ask the question on the screen, um, this idea that says, uh, why don't people automatically trust Christians today? In the past, there was that inherent respect. If, have you ever had this experience where you're having a dialogue with someone? Maybe it's uh, the kind of the typical example we give is like on an airplane, but maybe you're uh, interacting with someone at work in your class, um, someone in a neighbor, and you start talking, you're hitting it off, and then uh, you know, they say things like, oh, like, I don't know, they, they ask a question, and it, you share that you're a Christian. You can almost feel and see walls being built up. You can almost feel and see a reticence to, for them to kind of maybe pull back a little bit. You can almost feel and see that where once a bridge was being let down, the wall has now been built up. And a lot of that has to do with sometimes how we are as Christians. Why? Because even those of us who follow Jesus, we all fall short of the glory of God. There's none that are perfect, no, not one, that we acknowledge that we sin and we don't do the things that we should do and we don't do the, or, and we, excuse me, do the things that we shouldn't do. None of us are perfect. None of us have it all together. And yet what makes us Christ followers is, is not this hypocritical idea of like, oh, well, you say you're perfect, but you don't act perfectly. No, no. What makes us Christ followers is that in our imperfections, we confess those sins and those those areas of unrighteousness, to a perfect God, to God who was in heaven and came from the riches of heaven to the rags of a manger to live a perfect life, to die a horrible death, and then to be raised back to new life so that we may have eternal life. It's not about our goodness. It's about Christ's goodness. It's not about our performance. It's about Christ's provision. And it's not about how how perfect we portray ourselves to be. It's recognized that in our imperfections, in our brokenness, we can point to Christ who is perfect. And I bring all that up because we've lost, and I don't mean like our church specifically, but we as Christians have lost a lot of that. Let me give an example. When I was in high school, 
I remember hanging out with some friends, uh, specifically one friend that he and I were hanging out a little bit more frequently. And I remember he invited me to a night of bowling. Um, he's like, hey, a group of friends of mine are going to go bowling. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I'm horrible at bowling. Let's be horrible together. And so we went bowling. And after a couple games, I think it was maybe two games, um, we were kind of all of us were in a corner of the bowling alley. And we had reserved lanes for the groups. And after about two games or so, it was kind of like, hey, everyone, we're done bowling. And then a youth pastor came and shared the gospel message. Now, is it bad to have bowling events that have the gospel? No, of course not. But what happened was, is because my friend just said, let's go bowling, and then there was a gospel message presented, and I had no idea what was happening, all of a sudden, it's not like I just didn't trust him at all as a person, but I was like, you weren't really fully honest with me. And now when you invite me somewhere, I think this is before I was following Christ. It's like, are you inviting me to hang out or is there an ulterior motive? Is there something else going on that now I have to, I just, I ask that question. And I think what we do is if, if we come to a point where we're inviting people to an event we have at church for our youth group or our children's ministry or here on a weekend, you know, when we say, hey, if you want to come to our church, we have something going on. We're pointing them that there's a, there's a spiritual element to this. But I felt at that time, I just I had no idea, and it felt like the rug was taken out for me a little bit. And so it just created, not, a, not again, not a huge chasm, but a seed of doubt, of distrust towards what are you asking me to be a part of. And as someone who wasn't following Christ, sometimes that's all it takes, a little seed of distrust for us to feel reticent to want to keep building relationships with people who know Jesus. And so I can give that example from being on that side, but for those of us who know Jesus and love Jesus, what does it look like for us to be able to build these relationships with people? Because again, our culture, um, they see a lot of what Christians are against and not a lot of what Christians are for. They, they see a lot of, um, if you talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus, they, if we're, okay, let's put it this way. You know how when you use Google on the computer, and you type in something, and Google will start to auto-fill in um, the most common questions, right? Uh, and so if we write, excuse me, if we write, why are Christians so, what we would hope is, why are Christians so loving? Why are Christians so generous? Why are Christians so caring? Why are Christians so good? I challenge you to do that tonight when you go home, because what you will see instead are, why are Christians so hypocritical? Why are Christians so judgmental? Why are Christians so hateful? Why are Christians so bad? What does that tell us? It tells us that in our culture, there's an era of distrust. There's a season in which when people think Christian, they used to think respect and someone that they could trust. Now they think someone who is horrible or who believes whatever. And there's a very hard journey threshold from distrust to trusting another, uh, trusting a Christian. And that, friends, is what we're going to spend our time talking about today. Because as I mentioned last week, I was asking you all to pray for one to two people that the Holy Spirit would put on your heart that God may want to have you walk through this journey with. And so as we are unpacking this today, um, we're going to be in John chapter 4, the story of the woman at the well with Jesus. So if you want to follow along in the Bible app, if you have your Bible with you, if you don't have a Bible, the seats uh, racks in front of you or, behind, or underneath you have them. But 
With that said, what I want to do as you're turning there is I want to share what that book, uh, I Once Was Lost, talks about five knee-jerk reactions we have when someone shows us distrust purely because we're Christians. So the first one that we often have is that we want to defend ourselves. You know, we want to defend and say, um, no, no, I'm not like that person. You've read about all those judgmental Christians. No, I'm totally different. And so here's how I can prove to you that I'm okay. And here's how I've showed that I'm, I, you know, I'm not like them. And we, we want to defend ourselves. We, we, we don't want to be lumped in with, with those, you know, those bad Christians. And so instead of taking the time to listen and to hear their story, we just come out and try to defend ourselves. Number two, one of the things that we will often do is we bruise. That means that we're, we're like, we are actually hurt that, you know, you know me. And if you're speaking with someone, like, you know me, you know I'm not like that. Like, I'm hurt that you would include me in, in, in this group of people that is, you know, that, that you think is so angry. Don't you know who I am? Don't you, haven't you seen how I live? And what happens when we bruise is that unintentionally or intentionally, you hear the idea of like, Wounded people wound people. Well, bruised people can bruise people. And then we could say, well, how about you? You, you aren't even good anyway. Like, you know what I mean? We can start to bruise others because we've been bruised. The third thing that we often do is that we can um, try to avoid them altogether. We have a conversation with a neighbor and they say, you know, they seem to be interested. You know, we have a good rapport and then it's like, oh, you're a Christian. Um, you know, I had a horrible experience, and, uh, and you know, I don't, I, I don't want to talk to you anymore right now. Or, oh, they just cut the, the conversation off quickly. Or you're in class, and something similar happens. What do we do? We may decide that you see their garage door open, or you see them working the front lawn, and you just kind of do a cursory wave and go into your house. You avoid them. You see them walking down the, the, uh, towards the classroom at school, and you just go the other way. Because we think, if you're not going to... You know, if, you're, if you don't trust me, well, why should, I even, why should I even try to engage? Number four, another knee-jerk reaction we do is we judge people. We think to ourselves, well, you know, they're not even, like, they're so far gone. They're not, it, they're, what's the point of me trying to build a relationship with them anyways? Because they're just, you know, they're, they're, they're not ready. They're not going to be there. They're not going to receive it. And they're probably too far gone in, at, in the first place. Again, these are things we should not do, but things that are knee-jerk reactions that, in the same way that when a doctor goes like this and your leg kicks out, it's knee-jerk. You don't control it, but if we're not careful, we will embody this. The fifth one that we often do is we argue. Now, I think that there is a great place in faith journeys um, and walking alongside people. There is a fantastic place, which we'll see in future weeks, for the idea of apologetics, for unpacking the, the veracity or the truth of the Bible and, and how we know it's a reliable record and we look at different arguments and be able to describe. And again, apologetics comes from the Greek word apology, which means a defense. So it's us being able to explain our faith in a logical, rational, analytical way. There is absolutely a place for that. But if someone's just at the place where they're just trying to trust a Christian, coming at it with specific, like, apologetic, well, what about this point? What about that point? What about this point? What about that point? May, if we don't have the relationship already, may fortify those walls rather than extending a bridge or building a bridge. So these are things that we need your reaction to. Now, some of us, some of us are people who uh, maybe we're a little bit more comfortable with confrontation. Maybe we're a little bit more analytical. So we, when someone expresses distrust, we might do a combination of defending ourselves and then arguing our faith, right? Like we just say, hey, here, 
I'm not like going to them. And in fact, let me unpack to you what these things mean. Is there a time and place for that? Yes. Is it before you've established trust? I would venture to say no. Because as we've heard before, people only care how much you know when they know how much you care. So maybe some of you are more emotional. I'm more of an emotional person. And so maybe you're like me and you might, if someone shows distrust to you, you might do a combination of bruising. Like, I can't believe you felt that about me. And you feel it and you're like, ah. And then avoiding. Because no one likes to be bruised, so we avoid that one who bruises us. And of course, there could be different combinations there uh, that are listed there. Maybe you have all five. Maybe you have one. Some combination thereof. And all of us will have a knee-jerk reaction to when we feel distrusted purely because we are Christians. And so how do we change that? What did Jesus do when he was in a circumstance in which someone expressed questions and, and distrust to him because of who he is, what he believed, and what he stated? The question we have here is John 4, 1, not the question, I'm sorry, John 4, 1 through 26, we talk about how Jesus helped move the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, from distrust to trust. Now, on the, on the screen, I only have a few of the verses up, so um, I'm going to read 1 through 6, it's not going to be on the screen, and then once we get to 7 through 15, it will be on the screen. So you can follow along in your Bible, you can listen as I read it, and here's what John 4, starting in verse 1, says. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, and we'll stop there. There were other routes, because as we will see, Jewish people would go out of their way, literally out of their way, to avoid the area of Samaria. And we'll unpack why in a few moments. But when it says he had to go through, it was not from a lack of options. It was from obedience to the Spirit's calling, okay? He had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. A couple things of note here is the emphasis on the fact that Jesus was tired. I think sometimes we forget that Jesus was fully God, but also fully man. He was tired like we tire. He got thirsty like we get thirsty. He was hungry. He got scraped knees, and he probably could have just been like heal himself, but I don't know. But it's just we know that he was fully God, but he was also fully human. So the struggles and the physical um, restrictions of the body of needs, thirst, sleep, hunger, those were all fully felt by him. So he was hungry. He was tired. He sat down at the well, saw a woman who was there at noon. The woman, most women at wells like this, if you've heard the story, you've heard that they would normally come in the morning for two reasons. One, in the morning was when the, the heat was less oppressive, and so you'd come in the morning. And then two, they needed water in order to get the chores done throughout the day. And so most women would come early in the morning to get the well, or water from the well. But as we will see, this woman has uh, a sordid reputation. She's a woman of ill repute that... Um, has, if we look at the evidence here, has been mocked and intentionally goes to the well at the hottest time, at the most inconvenient time, in full awareness that if she does that, she will avoid the ridicule and the pain inflicted on her by others. 
that would call her out for what she's done and treat her poorly. So Jesus does all this, and this is all backstory. But verse 7, which we see on the screen, says that when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Now, what I want to do is I want to read a quotation from Timothy Keller, which is on the next slide, and how he unpacks the gravity of what Jesus does in this uh, section. So this is what Timothy Keller does, talks about John 4. He says, and so when Jesus begins to speak to her, he is deliberately reaching across almost every significant barrier that people can put between themselves. In this case, a racial barrier, a cultural barrier, a gender barrier, and a moral barrier. And every convention of the time that he, a religious Jewish male, should have nothing whatsoever to do with her. But he doesn't care. Do you see how radical that is? See, the Samaritans were a group of people that came from when the Jewish people were overtaken by the Assyrians in the, um, from the northern kingdom in the year 722 B.C. That the Jews that were left behind and were there, they would intermarry with the Assyrians. And the race that came out of that, who were part Jewish, part Assyrian, were the Samaritans. So the Samaritans were people that were looked down upon by Jewish people. One, because they, had, they intermarried, and so there was a different race, which was not supposed to happen, Two, because their faith then got syncretized. In other words, the Jewish faith and the Assyrian faith would, would get intermingled or mixed to the point where then it wasn't purely the Jewish faith anymore. Three, Jesus was a man who, speaking to a woman in public that was not your wife or family member, would be a reason for gossip. It would be something that was inappropriate especially knowing the history of this woman who's had five husbands and who the man she's with now um, is not her husband. So anyone in the town who sees her speaking with a man is going to automatically make some assumptions. As we see, they're false, but they would make them. And then lastly, the, the moral barrier. Again, he was a religious Jew who kept the law, and she was someone who would, from her story, she breaks it all the time. And so here's why this is important, is that we see that it's radical for people, for us as Christ followers, to bridge gaps or to go over barriers in order to build relationship. That if we only surround ourselves with people who look like us, think like us, believe like us, and act like us, we'll have a great community, but we won't necessarily have the best witness. So our job is to have that community from which we get our relationship with God and we draw close to one another, but then to still be used by God as a testimony, to still build relationships with those who don't follow Jesus. Now, who should our closest friends be? Those who impact us most. Those should be people who follow Jesus, right? I'm not trying to say put one foot in the world and one foot in the word, and that's, I'm not trying to call you to straddle both. I'm calling us to build bridges instead of staying within our fortresses, to go out and reach out rather than to stay inside our echo chambers and our safe places to the point where we are not having a witness for Christ anymore. And so Jesus broke those barriers. He didn't allow those walls to fortify him from keeping her and him separated. He bridged the gap, and we'll see more about that in a moment. Then verse 9 
She responds, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Oh, I'm sorry, I read that part already. Forgive me. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11 says, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. See, we'll stop there for now, but we see that her ultimate need, and she recognizes this through talking to Jesus, her ultimate need is not water, physical water, to slake her thirst for the day, and it's not water to do the chores that needs to be done. Her ultimate need and our ultimate need is not something that the physical or the material can quench. Her ultimate need and our ultimate need is to have a life-saving, everlasting relationship with Jesus Christ to know God the Father and Jesus who sent him. But as the book talks about, I once was lost, and as we talk about here, notice that she expresses distrust right off the bat. Why are you talking to me? You're a Jewish man. He could have defended himself. I'm not like those other Jewish men. No, no. He could have argued himself, well, you know, this is this. He could have bruised and said, I can't believe you think that about me, that you would lump me in with everybody else. He could have avoided her. But no, he engaged her. So instead of the knee-jerk reactions that maybe when I'm on it, when I have those, when someone distrusts me, of those different things, he, he engages with her. He speaks with her. He gets to know her. He learns from her. And he shares the truth in love. He doesn't water down the gospel. He still tells her what she's been doing is wrong. But he does so in love, and he does so once he's built trust. So then she says, well, what about the water? How can you draw water out of the well? Are you greater than Jacob? She doesn't know she's speaking to the Messiah. He could have been offended. Don't you know who I am? I am Christ and like just does a miracle in front of her or something. Like she, she, he could have done that. What does he do? He just calmly builds trust that whenever there was a place where she tried to build a wall, he took that wall down brick by brick. Anytime she tried to burn a bridge, he built that bridge right back up. He saw the need in her heart, not for water in a well, but for the everlasting water, the living water that comes from relationship with him. And he engaged her on that level. But if he just walked up and said, you need me, I'm the Messiah, would that have worked? I mean, I guess it's possible. I, I certainly am not going to question what God could do. But we see that he takes the time to build that relationship, even if it's just over a morning, that sometimes this threshold can take years. And other times, if God is bringing the right person at the right time in the right situation with the right questions and interaction, we could build trust with people who don't know Jesus through our lives and our words and our actions quickly. But this threshold is so vital. Because if they don't cross this one, they won't even be on the journey to cross the next ones. So let's take just the last couple minutes that we have together 
And we're going to write down some habits. So the question we ask are, how can we build trust? How can we build trust with people who see Christians as untrustworthy? That when they type in Google and it says, why are Christians so judgmental, hypocritical, hateful? They say, yes, that is where I'm coming from. How do we, as Christ followers, build trust? And if you took notes, if you're taking notes, uh, the five uh, knee-jerk reactions of distrust coincide with these five that we are going to unpack here together. There's a, there's a connection between uh, each one in order. So the first thing that we would do is that instead of uh, just defending ourselves, that we would pray. We would pray for the people we're trying to reach. And we don't try to reach them just so we can make a little notch on our Christian belt saying that, oh, I did the right thing and I evangelized. Because people, as you know this, people know when they're just a project in your eyes. In the same way that when a telemarketer calls me, I don't want to build a relationship with them because I know they really care about my needs. I say, I'm a project for you. I'm someone that you're just trying to cross off your list. People who don't know Jesus can see right through us if our desire is purely just saying that we did a Christian thing. But if we love people and love God, which, of course, is the most Christian of things, love God and love others, when we do that, we'll help to establish trust. So we pray for those open doors. The second thing uh, that we often do is we learn from them. doesn't mean that we take everything that they share with us and we, we say, oh, this is the same as the gospel or this is the same, but we learn their stories. We learn, hey, so you, you just express a lot of distrust. Maybe you don't say it this way because that might be weird too. But, hey, you seem like you've been really hurt by Christians before. I'm sorry about that. Can, would you be willing to share with me a little bit about your story? And learn from them. Hear their, hear their story in that regard. Rather than just trying to um, go up against them. The third thing that we could do is bond. That Jesus reached out and bonded with her over a cup of water, knowing what her deepest need was. That no matter what racial, cultural, um, gender, moral, any of those barriers that Timothy Keller talked about, no matter what barriers there may be to divide us with other people, all of us have the same basic needs. We all need hope in difficult times. We all need to know that we have a purpose. We all need love, ultimately love from God. People who don't follow Jesus may not say that, that, oh, I need, I need love from God, but we'll be pursuing love, not to be cliche, but we pursue love in all the wrong places. This woman was pursuing love, in her case, through men and relationships, but that would never satisfy. There's only one man with whom we can have a relationship that will satisfy. That's Jesus. He bonds with them. He shows her, and we can show others what we have in common. Third thing is that you affirm. To be clear, this does not mean affirming the lifestyle. Does not mean affirming the sin, but affirming that they are people who have needs as well. Here's how we prove, not prove it, but here's the, what Jesus did in this point. Verse 16, it's not on the screen, so just listen along. Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you have is now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. 
See, he's not saying, oh, it's okay that, you've not had, that you have five husbands and that you're sleeping with a man right now. It's not your husband. Like, that's, that's okay. That's all right. He's not, he's not um, besmirching his witness, and he's not watering down, no pun intended with living water, but he's not watering down the truth. He's not affirming her lifestyle, but he affirms her as a person who has real needs. That we can affirm people, not always their lifestyles or what they're doing, but we can affirm that they have needs and that we can share, them, that, share with them how Jesus meets them in that, in that difficulty and those needs. And then lastly, what we could do is we can welcome them. That as we start to have opportunities to have people over for dinner and to, to have things like that, it's welcoming people in our lives that don't see, or look and think and act and believe like us, but it's building relationship with them and welcoming them in, recognizing that we too were welcomed in and we too are invited at the table from God, even though we don't deserve it. And so the table is a beautiful picture of God's love for us, that he invites us in. Even when if it were based on our own goodness, we wouldn't have any opportunity to be close to him. But it's based on his goodness and his love that we're able to do that. So, as we've said, we're moving, today our, our topic is moving from distrust to trust. And so, this stage can take a long time. It can be quick too, but a lot of times it takes a while. And so right now, um, as we prayed, or as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, if you follow Jesus, my hope and prayer is that the Holy Spirit will reveal one or two people in your life that you know they don't trust a single Christian. And you say, I'm, God, I pray that you would help me to learn their story, to bond with them, to affirm where they're at in their difficulty, to welcome them. And God, may you open up a door. Jesus saw the open door of the water and allowed her to walk through that threshold to know, recognize her need for Jesus and for the Messiah. Here's how that story ends. Woman, verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know, but we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. See, when trust is established, a conversation that can start with a cup of water can end with a declaration of who the Messiah is. Or a relationship that takes years to build can start with something small that can become eternity-changing for them and generation-impacting for their families. Right now I have a neighbor that uh, he and I have talked a couple times, and we text one another if we have questions and need help or anything. And it just, it's just slowly building relationship. I've lived there for two and a half years, and... When he had to fly out of town, he and his wife, I, he told me to, um, he asked if I could uh, go into his backyard and make sure that the pool pump and look after the pool. And so I know that sounds like I got to go swimming. I didn't get to go swimming. But I was like, oh, I'm looking after your pool. Um, but, uh, but it's one of those where it's like, okay, yeah, we're just establishing trust. If he, if he asked me to do that, I can do that. If, he ask, if I ask him for something, he helps me. Uh, 
one of the reasons why he had to go to or go out of town was because his wife's father, so his father-in-law, uh, in Hawaii, um, was uh, sick and not doing well. And so he's heading out, asked if I could take care of that, and I just said, you know, I'm going to pray for you. And so it's not that we hide that we're Christians, but we acknowledge that we, can, we need to build trust with people in order to be able to share the gospel in a way that impacts them, that people don't always care what you know until they know how much you care. And so he came back, and at the time he was doing better, the father-in-law was doing better, and, um, and I know now that that's not the case, but um, it's just building trust. And if I came in and was like, I need to knock on his door my first day here and share the gospel with him, could God use that? Of course he could. I'm not going to devalue the power of the Holy Spirit by any stretch of the imagination. But one of the important thresholds that we are called to do is to be trustworthy Christians so that people who have distrust because of the world around us towards Christians, that they know they could trust one Christian. And that one Christian that can have an impact on their life might just be you. They're not going to come and listen to me speak until they know that God through his word has spoken in your life and changed you. They're not going to come to a church until they see what the church, the people of the church are like and how they live and how they act. They're not going to come on a Sunday until they see how we live Monday through Saturday. So maybe you are the one person who can build trust with whoever it is that God is putting on your heart right now. May we live a life worthy of that calling. Even if it takes a lot of time, we know that the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, so we seek the Lord of the harvest to help us in this journey. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are um, here with us now. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that um, each person who hears my voice is deeply loved by you. But Lord, I also recognize that, uh, Lord, for those of us who follow you and who hear this message, it's challenging and we wrestle with it. But Lord, I want to take, I pray that you would give us courage and faith and strength and wisdom. But Lord, I also pray right now for those who hear this sermon, whether they're live or listening to it later, God, and who are not on that journey with you. They don't follow you. They are sitting in the distrust. Lord, I pray that you would surround them with people who love you. I pray that they would have the open eyes and ears and hearts to just trust a Christian. And Lord, I pray that you would move in their lives one day, one moment, one threshold at a time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.